0: This is Real Talk, the customer insights show with Jen Vogel. Jen and her guests share valuable information to help you understand your customers better. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also ask Alexa or Siri to play Real Talk. This episode is presented to you by Vox Populi, the leader in video surveys. Here's today's episode.
1: Hello, insights professionals, marketers, and everyone who wants to understand their customers better. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Real Talk, the Customer Insight Show. We are live on LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube, and the podcast version will be available on podcast channels soon. Today, I'm very excited to chat with Rand Fishkin, founder of Moz and now SparkToro. He launched SparkToro to help you identify your customer's biggest sources of influence and the hidden gems so you can reach them where they hang out. Welcome, very special welcome to Real Talk, Rand.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Jen. Great to be here.
1: Really excited for this conversation. Everybody, bear with me. I'm fangirling a little. I'm very excited to have this conversation with Rand today. <laughs> so if I seem a little weird, I am.
0: <laughs> for little old me, I don't understand why.
1: Totally. I'm totally a fan. So <laughs> I'm very excited to have you on the show today. <laughs>
0: That's far too um,
1: well, so now you are very well known for launching moz, and uh, you know for those of you in the audience who haven 't read rand 's book lost and founder there 's a lot of good learnings and honesty from from that book and i 'd love just a little bit like about what you learned from that experience, I'm sure, you, there's a lot to distill down into just a couple of minutes. But what did you learn from that experience in uh, in launching Moz?
0: Yeah, I mean, so that was it was a very long journey, right? I um I have this weird experience of essentially dropping out of college, um, working with my my mom, who ended up being my co-founder at Moz, um, on the business that would become that that company. Uh, initially, was a web design company, then it became an SEO consulting company, and then a, obviously an SEO software company uh, in its later stages. And uh, I was there for, yeah, like I said, 17 years. So it, it essentially encompasses all of the learnings that I've had as a human being outside of childhood, hmm. right? Um, and that, that means, uh, gosh, uh, every mistake you could possibly imagine You know, financial mistakes, management mistakes, hiring and recruiting mistakes, uh, product strategy mistakes, um, customer research mistakes. We we made them. I made them. I I never worked anywhere else. And I actually really regret that. I think that in retrospect, what I wish I had done with my career is spent some time at a few other companies. You know, I I don't know, Jen, your entire employment history, but... um, I feel like there is, even if you have terrible experiences at companies, you learn a lot. You grow a lot as a person from experiencing. Oh, what does a good manager do? What does a bad manager do? What does a good CEO look like? What, is, what does a bad one look like? What does a good leadership team? How do you build that? And I didn't. I didn't have any of those, so I was I was starting from scratch every time I did it. And I will say this: I you know I sort of opened Lost Founder with this kind of video game analogy. I don't know if you play video games, but um, if you do. You have this experience when you play a video game that the first time, you know, whatever, you're you're fighting the monsters and, you know, um, jumping around or whatever it is. And you're just, you know, losing every single time and starting over and starting over. And then as you as you play through, you get better. Right. You stop. You see a scary monster in the video game. You stop panicking. And you start reacting the way you're supposed to, right? And you you logically, your brain sort of manages that stress and, and discomfort, and you figure out ways to work through the problem. And running a company is a lot like that. It's really, really similar. You know, it, obviously the the length um, and the degree to which you are having fun and enjoying yourself is different <laughs> <laughs> potentially, but I, that is that is my big takeaway, right? That the The first few times you encounter a problem those sorts of spikes in cortisol levels and panic and stress um, and that that initial incorrect reaction that's your um, instinct takes over and and if you can fight through that if you can encounter that problem several times or learn the tactics right read the strategy guide oh you're encountering this monster for the first time don't worry about it. Just you just go to the left and then you go around the back and you, you hit the bad guy there. Great. And and this is this is just like, you know, a product strategy problem. Oh, you're seeing that your product is interacting with customers in this certain way and they are not resonating with new features go back to this process, right? And here's how to have the kinds of productive conversations and ask the right questions and run the right surveys and send the right emails to be able to get at the core of why these features aren't working for you. And maybe it's a positioning problem. Maybe it's a marketing problem. Maybe it's a communication problem. Perhaps it's actually a feature and functionality problem. Maybe it's a user interface issue. No one's discovering it. And you can can suss those out if you know what to look for. I didn't know what to look for. So I just ran into the room with the big monster and panicked.
1: <laughs> that does sound a little scary, but I I feel like regardless of, you know, you mentioned you wish you had worked for some other companies, like regardless of where your experience comes from it is experience and those problems will come up over and over again and you do have references you build up references as you go of how to handle them and you know the mistakes that you made last time and doing things a little different regardless of where that experience comes from hopefully each time you encounter that problem you're doing it a little bit better
0: yeah yeah that's the that's the idea right is that it's not merely I think one of the one of the challenges we have as human beings, especially leaders, right? So you know, Jen, if you're you're put into a leadership role, whether that's just a manager of a few people or leading a team or leading an entire company, um, there is a natural inclination to double down on this idea that you're in charge, and so therefore your decisions are correct, and so you seek out data and information and um stories that 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 try and put you in the best light and if you've made mistakes you don't own up to them and talk about them you know with emotional intelligence and with um regret and thoughtfulness you double down on the idea that this mistake was not a mistake it was intentional, right? You're trying to make yourself look at, this is particularly pernicious, I think in sort of the historically masculine culture of, you know, American business. Like there's just this idea of not showing weakness of like always projecting strength. When you think of sort of the most famous entrepreneurs and CEOs, they, they're not the kind of people who um thoughtfully express empathy and regret for their decisions they're the kind of people who are like i do can too if you follow my seven steps <laughs> i hate that, that crap
1: that feels like a topic we could spend a lot of time on <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. toxic masculinity i look forward to this discussion uh Definitely. we'll be in conversation all week
1: yeah welcome to our rabbit hole <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. things our I mean, fathers taught us that they really shouldn't have <laughs>
1: Everything we learned in kindergarten that we should have thrown yeah. away, I love it. Um, <laughs> so maybe we'll get back on track. Um, so I mean, with everything that you learned from your all your experience at Moz and and throughout your adult life, what prompted you to now start Spark Toro and kind of what what have you done differently with this this launch?
0: Yeah, um so let's see first part of that question. SparkToro is essentially an idea born from a problem that I couldn't solve at Moz. So for those of you who who are familiar with um, web marketing and digital marketing, right there's there's lots of channels and tactics and options but but Moz was specifically in the SEO space right helping people with search engine optimization which is essentially ranking organically one way or another in Google's results of any kind right so how do how do i show up at the top of Google without paying them money to be in the paid search results and that is a remarkable marketing channel it's it's truly awesome if your customers and potential customers and community are already searching for the thing or things that you often the case, right? In, in many many... times, I think the live streams just a little behind. Um, but in many cases, the, uh, reality is no one is looking for this precise product, right? No, one's looking for exactly what you have to offer. Um, and so, you need to essentially reach your customers, not through search as a channel, but through some other methodology, through some source of influence that they already pay attention to. And uncovering those sources is really difficult. Like if you want to figure out, for example, you you know you mentioned in the intro, Jen, if you are, let's say you're, um, uh, an engineering firm and you've come up with a, an amazing new product for architects, And so you want to reach a lot of architects with this fancy new product, but architects don't search for it because it's never existed before. It's new, and so do they. Do architects even search for the problem that they have, or do they think they know how to solve it, or they don't even know to look for that? This is a real challenge, right? That's a um, that's a marketing conundrum that that search cannot solve. And Facebook ads or Instagram or something like that are going to be extraordinarily expensive because there's tons and tons of people bidding to be in front of that audience anyway. So what you really want to do is you want to find out, okay, maybe there are podcasts that architects listen to on a regular basis. Maybe there's trade journals that they uh, read and, and follow and visit. Maybe there's social accounts that are popular in the architectural world. Maybe there's websites that are like really well known to them. Uh, maybe there's an event series that I could participate in or like a hashtag that they use weekly on Instagram and Twitter that I could, you know, amplify my product to there. That would be awesome if only you knew those things. And and unfortunately, um, you know, the, the classic market research process for this is surveys and interviews, which are terrible at revealing sources of influence. Because if you ask an architect hey tell me about some podcasts you listen to they'll be like oh yeah this murder mystery one yeah i don't know like in what about in architecture world um yeah i've heard of this this one or two all right well what percent has really reached those how many people do we need to interview and survey to get that it's going to be very difficult to get that kind of data um especially at scale with any statistical significance and so Casey and I, my co-founder and I had this idea, like, wait a minute, people already on their public, you know, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, Pinterest, YouTube, like they have all these accounts. Many of them will say I'm an X," right? So thousands and thousands of people online are like, oh, I'm an architect at this firm. Great. What if we could crawl that public profile, just like Google does, and then look at all the things that they publicly Share and link to and follow and amplify and talk about, and then aggregate all that data together so that you could see oh, okay, well, of the 12,492 architects that we could find in our database, uh, 19% have engaged with this Archonnect sessions podcast in the last three months. Okay, that's probably there you go, 19%. Of online architects engage with that podcast. I bet it has probably pretty substantial listenership among professional architects in the US. Great. Right. That's so this is where the idea uh for SparkToro came from.
1: That's amazing. I'm I'm a big fan of the platform. I I was lucky enough to be invited okay. as an early beta user. Yes, you signed up.
0: That's right.
1: I did sign up and it w- it I've been using it for probably um over a year. And um exactly what you were saying. Like, I can rank number one for a keyword that has no search volume.
0: <laughs> oh, I rank for so many keywords with no search volume. Yeah. I mean,
1: that is like, you know, easier, like easy to do actually, yeah, but doesn't yeah. actually benefit you in any way, shape or form. And, you know, being able to identify the the topics that people talk about the, you know, where they live on the internet. And like you were saying, like you can't really ask people because you know, a lot of it is subconscious, right? Like I'm just, I'm scrolling through stuff. There's people I follow and I pay attention to what they say on Twitter, but I couldn't tell you what their name is, you know? Um,
0: And there's just just so much content out there. Yeah. Right. And, and you're just not going to get that. um, You'll, you'll generally get, all sorts of bias baked into the answer to that question and trying to ask people to give you those answers in a survey and give you more than two or three of them really really difficult whereas you know if you if you get this data from thousands of public profiles um or tens of thousands depending on your audience size uh you can really really dig into you know the the gritty details of the numbers and say like oh yeah okay we could um, advertising a popular whatever website like wallpaper or sorry like um, um, wired or something or Mashable, right? And oh, okay, well like 18, 17% of our, our architects, you know, have visited one of those websites or shared one of those websites. Okay, that's, that's not terrible. But what if what if we could find something that is hyper specific in our space? that's paid attention to by even more and the advertising rates or are even cheaper, or they take guest editorials or we can do co-marketing, or I could pitch to speak at one of their events or, you know, be a guest on their podcast or whatever it is. There's just a lot of opportunity, unexecuted marketing opportunity in those spaces because it's really hard to discover those sources. And this is frankly, Google and Facebook, have in their duopoly, you know, control of advertising interest, they they do not want this data to be known, right? Because yeah. what they hope is everyone will just keep spending money with them more and more every quarter, and they'll keep bidding up advertising rates. And the, the more they can get people to participate in their sort of ecosystem, the higher those advertising costs go because there, there's more uh, demand and there's only a fixed amount of supply. In fact, that's what's happened over the last year during the pandemic. That's why their profits have been skyrocketing because, you know, a lot of other, especially sort of in real life, outdoor, you know, traditional TV, traditional radio, traditional print, that's all going away. And so those ad opportunities are flowing to Facebook and Google. Mm -hmm. But if you can break free from that ecosystem, uh, you can build up a tremendous competitive advantage in marketing.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. Now you're uh, kind of you and your co-founder are, are running SparkToro a little a little differently um than Moz. And I've heard you describe um <laughs> I've heard you describe Spark Toro the, the goal of Spark is be, to be a zebra as opposed to a unicorn. I'd love to hear like from your own words what that means. Like what's the difference?
0: Yeah, so unicorn has this um classic venture capital uh, meaning, at least in in uh, startup culture. So the, the idea is a unicorn is a startup that has been valued by its investors at a billion dollars or greater. And um, the reason that venture capitalists care so much about kind of that particular number um, is that they are looking for Exceptional returns on a very small number of their investments. So, if you're a venture capitalist, um, say you and I, Jen, we start a venture capital firm. We'll, we'll call it uh, uh, Real Talk Investors, and, and Real Talk Investors. Um, you know, we're going to put on our our vests, you know, with the little logo over here, and uh, we're going to get our tall iced drinks, and we're going to walk into a bunch of You know family offices for super wealthy people and endowment funds at colleges and these kinds of things and we're going to pitch them on why if you give your money to chen and rand we will take you know 300 million dollars and we will beat the market's rate of return by investing in a bunch of early stage companies uh we'll we'll invest in probably 250 maybe 300 companies over over the course of seven to ten years and of those 300 companies we put money into Two hundred and ninety will uh, basically be worthless. Like they'll they'll die, they'll fall apart, they'll go bankrupt. They're nothing. But the the ten remaining, five or six of those, hopefully, will have big returns. You know, five to ten x returns. So we'll we'll put in twenty million bucks, and hopefully, we'll get out a hundred million dollars from that. Uh, and two or three of those companies, if we're if we're lucky, right? If we're a great fund will be worth a billion dollars or more, and they'll return a hundred million plus. They'll basically make the whole fund for us. This is the model of venture capital, right? The the entire um, structure and system, it's essentially set up as a big tax dodge. In the 60s and 70s, a bunch of VCs lobbied the federal government to get the capital gains rate brought down, blah, blah, blah. But thanks to this tax dodge, um, you can you know, invest uh, money in early stage companies and you pay very little, even no taxes um, on your first like $10 million of gain in a, in a company. Uh, and the the idea behind this is that for, for whatever reason, right, that statistical belief in that industry is 95% of companies will die. A few will be worth a billion dollars and the those will be the unicorns, right? That, that we're all seeking, we're all going after. And I think, in case he thinks a lot of people think um, this model is super, super unhealthy, right? It very obviously, I think, one of the most obvious things it does is deeply contributes to income inequality, right? If you if you are having you know 295 companies, 290 companies fail, and one or two companies make a billion dollars, what guess what you're doing, right? You're essentially saying like, okay, more money for the 0.01 percent nothing for the 99.9 percent that that sucks i hate that i don't want to participate in that um world that that sounds bad to me uh you also sort of further monopoly power and control right because a venture capitalist is really looking for a new entrant that's going to be the you know airbnb google amazon apple facebook um, of its field, they don't. They don't want competition. They want one player that they've invested in to own the whole field. That's really where those big wins come from. Um, and I don't. I don't think that's a great thing either. So I tried to. That's what Moz tried to be. Right? Moz wanted Moz to be. And I was working hard. Raised thirty million dollars. You know, built it to fifty million in revenue a year. Um, was hoping to get to. Yeah, that billion-dollar valuation someday, um, and there's there's a lot of problems with that model. It's it's not great for a ton of people, including employees um, and customers. It's not not super great. And so with Farktoro, um, there's there's a great uh, group of folks. I believe it is. Um, so let's see the the there's there's four women behind it. Um. This movement, I think, it started with an essay called "Sex and Startups," um, and it's it's a great read. I, I highly recommend it. But they um, they talk about this idea of zebras rather than unicorns, right? So essentially, sustainable, long term companies that can that can run and make their employees and their customers and their community um, happier, better places by by their existence, and that really, really appeals to me. Um, so. Yeah, you can you can look it up, but we're we're trying to build a zebra company that we can work at for a long time that has a low odds of failure rather than teeny, teeny, tiny odds of becoming a billion-dollar company.
1: So it's really more about like consistent growth and customer and employee value, as opposed to rapid 10x returns.
0: Yeah, it's it's sort of the anti-blitz scaling philosophy, yeah. right? Slow and steady, happy to be the tortoise, get to a million dollars in revenue. We're happy with that. If it's 10 or 50, Hey, that's wonderful too, right? We're not going to complain, but we're, we are satisfied at whatever size, uh, Spark Toro can reach and we will keep improving the product and stick to the mission rather than feeling pressured to find a way no matter how, to either become a billion-dollar unicorn or die trying.
1: Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um, so, how did you first bring Spark to market?
0: Uh, yeah, it was a it was a significant process. I'm sort of a um, I'm a contrarian on a bunch of things, Jen, and one of those <laughs> is uh, the idea of the MVP. Are you familiar with this? Mm-hmm. Right. So, Eric Reese's Lean Startup book, kind of. Um, popularized this concept of a minimum, minimum viable product. And the concept is you, you launch something that's really crappy, but does a bare minimum job of kind of solving the customer pain point problem so that you can prove and validate whether you have a good product idea. Um, and there's a lot of good things about this, right? Because you, you can do it hopefully very quickly. Um, you don't have to invest a ton if you've made a mistake, right? And and there is no demand for this product or this problem isn't uh, as painful as you th- thinking goes into it. But there's also a big um, problem. And that, that problem is if you launch a minimum viable product, many people, and, and many people see it for the first time. They will remember their experience with that product. They will not, you know, longer term in the future, kind of go, "Oh, I, I see that this is a promising product, and someday it could be great." And so, let me give the team time, and you know, we'll see where they get with this. That's not how people think, right? If the if the first Tesla was terrible, uh, would would. Elon Musk really have gotten all the sort of government loans and all the positive press and all the, like, he's a genius. No, they would have been like, well, he's a crazy person. This was to be expected. And, you know, um, (laughs) it's still kind of a miracle that, (laughs) that, (laughs) that it it runs at all. But um, uh, this is the philosophy that we took to heart, right? We, we realized that SparkToro by virtue of the fact that lots and lots of people in the marketing universe sort of know me already and follow me and, and pay attention to me on, whatever, social channels and had subscribed to get the, you know, like yourself, right? You had signed up for the beta list um, to be in SparkToro when it it launched. Um, And we invited you to the beta. Uh, We knew that we had to build a product that from day one was robust and impressive. And so um, we did a couple of things. First off, we did a lot of validation that the, that our theory that if you, aggregate all of this social public social data, you can actually get out useful results. That was kind of the first task. That was probably the first six, nine months um, to build up a database like that and then just start running queries against it and see if we could get there. Um, and then we had a lot of product iteration over the next sort of six months. And then we did a beta. And I think you were part of the beta that started in the fall of 2019, maybe summer 2019, fall of 2019. Um, We did two rounds of that beta, inviting several hundred folks to come play with and try the product for free. And I don't know if you remember that first version, but it looked and felt completely different. Like the UI and UX was was totally different. We got a lot of feedback about that. Um, And over the holidays in, yeah, at the end of 2019, we basically made our big change. And then 2020, um, we're like almost ready in February to launch. And then there is this coronavirus case at a nursing home near us. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that, um, I mean, it threw a monkey wrench in so many people's plans and hopes, but, um, and, and you know, cost a tremendous number of lives. So it's it just an uh, unimaginable tragedy. But also, you know, as far as it relates to SparkToro, um, really put a uh, damper on our Thoughts about launching. And so we delayed our launch a couple of months and then finally did launch in April. Um, but by that point, thankfully, we had had a lot of great feedback and input and a bunch of iterations. Um, we hired some consultants, uh, Elevate consultants, which is uh, Claire Solentrop and Georgiana Laudi. And they helped us run that beta process and analyze a lot of that feedback, take that to heart, um, fix things up. And so when we launched, you know, it it only took, I think it took four months for basically from April, five months to September, um, we were we sort of were able to grow fast enough to get to profitability and then have been operating it ever since. So we just, yeah, we just celebrated our one year since launch.
1: Well, congratulations. That's very exciting. Um, it's so funny. So Gia Laude was uh, a guest on the show a, a couple months ago. And, so uh, smart. She's the best, and uh, a great, a great mentor to me, and ha- and is who introduced me to uh, Spark Toro, and oh. also, um, you know, we now like talk about her pretty much every other show. So, <laughs> she,
0: and here like, she is again.
1: Yes, here she is again. I'm so glad you mentioned her. <laughs> um, I'm curious, like how much of like the queries that you were running when you were building this product, how much of that was designed for you to launch your product to the market that you were interested in?
0: Like were uh, you kind of you know, drinking your own champagne? Yeah, yeah, definitely some. And and the one of the reasons that we did some validation in that little, you know, in, in marketing universe is because we know it well so we couldn't hide bad results you know if i search for my audience frequently talks about architecture or my audience uses these words in their profile chemical engineer i don't know anything about those worlds they're just completely foreign to me right so i look at the results and i'm like well they seem reasonable i don't see any reason why they wouldn't be correct but i don't know for sure but when i do searches in marketing universe i'm like yep 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 that makes sense. And then, you know, occasionally, hey, what why is this one here? This that doesn't make sense to me. Can we figure out wh- what's causing that? Or, you know, is there some root problem underlying this? That sort really, of one, thing. One of the problems we had early on um, was that, you know, a lot of accounts and sources of influence were like in the, I would say, like political and um, news world which is what a lot of people do on their social profiles, right? Facebook, especially, Twitter, especially. And so had to do some controlling for that. We basically had to say, oh, if an account or celebrities, right? If an account is globally popular, essentially, you know, a high percent of all users follow, engage with, talk about a subject, a, a person, an organization, uh, then we need to not show it by default in the results. And we need to look for what is unique about this audience that you searched for. And, and once we did that, you know, the results just immediately became stellar. Like they just started looking great. Everything looked hyper-relevant. Um, you can in fact go into SparkToro today. There's a filter where you can say, include popular accounts, globally popular accounts. Um I think it's in the social and websites tab. And so if you want, you know, you will you can click that and it'll be like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, Barack Obama and CNN and blah, blah, blah. You're yeah. like, OK, yeah, sure. I guess lots of architects, you know, pay attention to those people and publications. But that's not really what most people who are targeting arts are looking
1: for. Yeah, totally. And those like broader channels, you're going to reach the people that are more important to you, but also a bunch of other people that are or maybe not
0: yeah right so like it is probably true that if you whatever run an ad in the New York Times yeah some architects will see it right but that is it is it worth your money right like that it, it's too broad a group unless you're sort of a big consumer product group company just doesn't make sense the targeting's off
1: yeah totally if you've got a really broad audience it makes sense but Sure. Otherwise, you know, you're not we're not going to spend the spend the cost to advertise in the New York Times most likely. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. It's like, oh, well, you you know, you have a mortgage refinance. All right. Your target is everybody with a mortgage. That's so broad. And there's no way to, you know, this is one of SparkToro's weaknesses. If you if you reach real estate agents, SparkToro is great. If you want to reach homeowners, SparkToro is kind of terrible. Right. Nobody says in their online profile homeowner right right that barely any identifiable online behaviors that could help separate someone who whatever owns their home versus rents there's no identifiable behaviors for people who have paid off their mortgage versus haven't
1: right so <clears throat> how I want to talk a little bit about the importance of kind of understanding those sources of influence of your customers when you do have a sort of identifiable target market. And how can companies use that information as a competitive advantage?
0: Oh, yeah. Um, So I think this boils down to a whole bunch of um, kind of tactics and strategies and problems that you are you know you need to solve or that you are facing. And so SparkToro is not a, oh, everyone should subscribe to it. It's you know it's it's necessary for everyone. It's really a point solution when you have this problem. So if, for example, you know, you are someone who says, our marketing engine is running just fine. I'm happy with our targeting. I feel like we do, you know, a good job with all of the channels we invest in. And I'm not looking to change those up we really want to just get more from the channels we already invest in. Could SparkToro maybe be helpful uh, in a couple of places, right? If you're saying like, oh, we want to optimize our Facebook ad spend, you could probably pop into SparkToro, search for your audience, find them, look for whatever hashtags that they might be using on Instagram or topics that they're paying attention to and talking about Facebook pages that they're following and then use those in your Facebook ad targeting. That's probably like a one month subscription right you just jump in you do it one time you jump out maybe six months later you do it again um but there's more pernicious long-term problems that alert um are are swing with spark toro and that's it's really stuff around like market research and market strategy uh, at the at the broad end of the spectrum and then down to um PR outreach, um, you know, my content marketing and content strategy and, and targeting and all those kinds of things. And uh, that is where, you know, this this data, no matter how you're getting it, you you need it to answer these questions. If your challenge is where should I reach my customers and potential customers outside of just Google and Facebook's ecosystem so that you know, so that three things can happen: one, so I can build a competitive advantage over folks who don't; two, so that I can have marketing channels that are sending me traffic, even when I and, and value, even when I'm not, you know, pouring dollars into these expensive ad platforms; and three, uh, when I am better known in a space, right? So wh- when you've heard of a product, heard of a brand, the ads work better too. Right. So you you get um, more return on investment by running an Instagram ad, a Facebook ad, a Google display ad, ranking in the Google search results, uh, you name it. If people have heard of you, if they know you and like you and trust you, they're going to click on you. You're going to earn that engagement. You're going to earn those, you know, essentially higher click through rates and lower cost per click. Um, so. When you're doing those kinds of things, um, you need to build up that brand equity. And to do that, you, you can't do it through advertising alone, right? Unless you have a massive war chest um, and can you know afford to do whatever, your Super Bowl sponsorship and, oh, let's buy stadium naming rights in a few cities and you know, that kind of stuff. But for most marketers, that is not a possibility. And so instead, what they have to do is go find specific targeted sources of influence that they know will reach their audience and invest in marketing of all kinds to reach them there and so one of the things that uh, a lot of folks do in sparktoro is we, we have this feature called lists where you you know you you run through a search for several facets and variations of of how your audience might describe themselves or their behaviors and then you find, oh yeah, okay, I like this podcast, and I like these three YouTube channels, and yeah, I want to go after the hashtags, and uh, oh yeah, these uh, social accounts look really good to me, and these press sources they look relevant, these websites, da da da. You add them all to a list. You know, you sort of check boxes and then say add to list, and then that list um, populates with contact information, whatever email addresses and social contact info. And then you can sort of export it and do whatever work you're going to do. That work could be, hey, we're going to target some ads at these folks. Or it could be, oh, we're going to email these people or we're going to DM them on Instagram or we're going to uh, send them a message on Twitter. or We're going to reach out to them on LinkedIn. We're going to get an introduction from our friend who knows them. Hey, you know, uh, Gia, you know, Jen at Real Talk. Could you introduce me and see, you know, maybe be a good podcast guest? That's not. That's not how this happened. <laughs> I don't think. Maybe this is is that no. how this happened? No. Okay.
1: No. I, although, I, if if you didn't if you didn't say yes, I might have called her. That might have been <laughs> the second the second way to to get you on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but so right. But these are these are the kinds of. So it's used by uh, podcast hosts and event organizers too, right? So they'll they'll basically say, "Hey, I know that I want to reach this audience. How do I find guests?" that are followed and paid attention to by that audience. Aha, I can use SparkToro to see, okay, I wanna reach uh, CFOs in Canada, right? Oh, Chief Financial Officers in Canada, they follow, um, gosh, uh, what's her name? Michelle from ClearBank, the the founder, one of the co-founders of ClearBank. I think she was on the Canadian Shark Tank, anyway. Oh, let's let's see if we can invite her on the show. Oh, okay. Uh, Rand knows her. Obviously, you can't remember her last name off the cuff, which is really annoying. I think it's Romanow. Roman Romanow. That's what it is. Michelle Romanau. Um, yeah. so, right? So, like, okay, that's the kind of thing that that is super useful to whatever, an event organizer who's looking to put together a great webinar or or have a live stream or you know bring someone to their YouTube channel who's going to get them to in front of the right audience. That's um you know that very tactical use of SparkToro.
1: Yeah, totally. And what you were saying about like your advertising is going to be more effective when people know who you are. Like that's exactly what I've used SparkToro for is like that journey mapping and I'm saying, like where do I need to reach people when they have no awareness of us, or, you know, where do I need to reach people when they do have some awareness of us, but they haven't quite engaged, you know, and really mapping out that journey for all the different personas that we service. And I think one of the other things that's been really interesting for me to discover using SparkToro is, you know, we kind of, we make assumptions that our personas, we focus on what's different, Right. Hmm. What's different about the personas that we service and how do we need to talk to them differently or reach them differently? And sometimes there's uh, some very obvious common threads that maybe we hadn't thought of or hadn't identified. And when you start to see how similar your different audiences are, then you can market to them even even more differently because you start to realize like, hey, they're actually struggling with the same problem and they're looking to the same sources for solutions. And, and that, that makes for a totally different strategy than totally separating them and assuming they're like uh, so different from each other.
0: Sure. Yeah. And, uh, there are a lot of folks who, who use the tool to sort of, um, make their personas more data driven, which Mm -hmm. I think is really smart. Right. Um, I, I don't know about you, Jen, but I have this, I wrote a blog post about this. I have this sort of, uh hmm. I don't want to say anger toward but uh, frustration with let's say frustration with um classic persona models because my my sense is that they're very stereotyping and reductive um so you know oh okay we saw that whatever our audience matches um these sorts of uh gender age education uh, race and ethnicity, geography, blah 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 blah. Okay, so now we're going to craft a profile of a forty-four-year-old um, Asian American woman in Atlanta uh, with two dogs and three and a half kids, and um, she her favorite Frappuccino order is cold. I <laughs> right, <laughs> um, and, and this is. That's barely, um, I'm barely making fun of a a persona there, right? Like a lot of them look like that, right? They have those sorts of characteristics. And I just, I very much worry that when marketers craft personas in those ways, using basic demographic characteristics, um, even basic psychographic characteristics, that they are stereotyping, that they're going to make some, serious errors in judgment, right? It could be that, you know, maybe you saw that Asian American women are currently overrepresented in your target audience. Does, is that because you have been biased in the past? And are you continuing that bias by baking it into your persona model for the future? Or is it truly the case that for some reason, race and ethnicity is a core reason that you are that that your product um, is being marketed to these folks, and right, unless it's like, oh, you know, we're whatever we make um, black hair care products, and so we're marketing it to Black Americans. Okay, that that makes reasonable sense, but beyond the that those very tiny use cases, I worry a lot about using demographics um in these things even age stuff right it's here's one of my favorite examples we talked about video games at the start of this you you know the fastest growing group of video gamers is is women over 50. women over 50 are the are the people who are most likely to adopt um, most likely to become new players of video games so what you you look at the demographic and psychographic targeting of any video game and it's just terrible. Yeah. Now granted this video game creators are not always the most sophisticated marketers, but <laughs> um I worry about that persona exercise. And so what I really like in a persona is things like, oh, a high percentage of my audience reads these publications. How oh, super useful. That tells me a lot about how to market to them. Uh, They talk about these topics. Great, now I know what kinds of language they use. Now I know how I can speak to them. Now I know what kinds of words and phrases will be completely over their head and which ones will really resonate because I'm using the same words and phrases that they are. I see which hashtags they follow. I know which social accounts they follow. So I have like a sense of the zeitgeist of that customer group. I, I, I like that kind of a persona far better than the, you know, whatever. Here's CFO Charlie, and, you know, he's got, well, here's how many dogs he has. Yeah. <laughs> don't, I don't. I.
1: I totally agree. I love, I think it was Mark Adams from Vice about a year ago talked about, like, described how, um, Ozzy Osbourne and uh, Prince Charles would fall into the same category um, (laughs) demographically, right? Right. Right, It's a great example. So like totally different worldviews, probably care about different things, but, you know, on paper demographics, they're in the same category. And so just like you're saying, like, it's so important to understand, like, actually what people care about and not just. Their age, their gender, their race, their ethnicity—you know—people um, are so much more than that. And I, I think it does feel like we're getting, just as a society in business, a little bit closer to having more empathy for who people are, and and you know,
0: yeah, I about... hope so. I, yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, i am hoping that like horrific scandals like the base camp thing will actually maybe upgrade our thinking in terms. Of, oh, maybe. Maybe I shouldn't make fun of my customers' names
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, on a list that my company maintains. That that does seem like a bad idea.
1: Right, right. We're learning. We're all getting better.
0: Please, <laughs> please let us get better faster.
1: Yes, yes. And so I just, um, I, I'm curious, like, what your thoughts are. Like, can you know too much about your customers? Like, is at some oh. point does all this information become a little bit creepy?
0: Uh so I think there's there's two vectors on which I do have concerns about that. Um one is when it violates um privacy that people really care about, right? So like so, so when um when a lot of marketers talk about privacy, they are often talking about um, digital footprints and like following your customer around. Oh, you visited the SparkToro website, and then you know a couple of days later you saw a SparkToro ad on Instagram. That's creepy. That's not really problematic. There's no there's no security violation. There's no risk of harm. Um, nothing bad can or will happen to you from exclusively that. However, there are lots of privacy um, issues in terms of oh, what if you could individually identify. You know, like, oh, we created this demographic ad group on Facebook and we were able to, whatever, persuade a bunch of Black Americans not to vote, which mm-hmm. which is something that, you know, the, the Trump campaign did successfully in 2016, right? And, and this is like a, a scary story now. What if uh, there's privacy issues around, um, hey, we targeted... Um, certain vulnerable groups of people with uh, an app that installs itself on their phone and then causes real security problems and has security flaws. And thus, you know, whatever, people can get their credit card number or their social security info or blah, 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 blah. Those are real privacy problems. And unfortunately, those get conflated um, a lot in the media and press. I think that's, that's a generally bad thing. But I do think you can with too much hyper-personalization of marketing data, especially at the platform end of things, you can have problems. So one of the things, well, SparkTora does a bunch of stuff here. Um, We don't collect, there's a lot of types of data we don't collect. And then there's types of data that we do see as we crawl uh, these platforms and we just toss out. So for example, names, we don't, you know, we might have, Jen, we might have your profile in our database and we might have something like whatever. Podcast host um, and you know um, Connecticut and and stuff like that, but we do not have it associated with your name. So you can't, you know, you can't, for example, go and see like, oh, okay, hey, those three thousand architects. Tell me all about those three thousand architects. No, 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 right. We'll, we'll never show the three thousand architects that you that you search for. We'll just show the aggregated information about them, um, and then on the on the other side of knowing too much um, outside of privacy, I think is the uh, you target your um, messaging, your positioning, your advertising, your content too narrowly and you don't appeal to as as big or the correct group. And this is one of the problems that personas bring up, right is that you can, way too narrowly focus in on this particular persona and oh well, I'm imagining it for CFO Charlie and I'm sure it'll work well for him, so it'll work well for all of our other customers. And I, I don't I don't think that's a great thing. I think that the creative exercise of, of writing for one person, right like like let's go delight this one person if we can delight them, we'll delight many others. I think that's that's reasonably decent advice. Um, in the creative world, I don't think it extends well to marketing. Mm. I
1: think,
0: I think that marketers do have to recognize and have empathy for the fact that different people are different (laughs) and there are you, unless you are selling one thing to one person, like, Oh, well, I'm selling a yacht to, you know, whatever, uh, Bill Gates. Okay. Well, you know, fine. You don't have to do a whole lot of marketing except like, um, are you recently divorced and dominating the, um, <laughs> the, what is it, vaccine distribution around the world? This yacht is for you. Um, that might be fine, but every other marketer on the planet needs to consider that their group of people are made up of a diverse cohort uh, of individuals and not get uh, overly fall overly in love with their singular persona that they might've used to reduce them to, to a one person idea.
1: Mm. Yeah. That's, that's really tricky. I mean, I mean, not to say that like positioning isn't tricky in general, but then to make sure that you're really like segmenting people appropriately and, and truly speaking to them in a way that they will understand, like, that is a big challenge for a lot of marketers.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't think it is that bad, but I do. I do feel like the um, there's a sense of like, oh, I want to speak individually to each of my customer targets, um, as opposed to find what's shared between them, mm-hmm. like you said, and you know, and create something resonant based on that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I say this on a lot of episodes, but I really mean it. Like I could probably go on for like another hour on this conversation, <laughs> but I think we should, we should move on. And, um, for, if anybody needs me, I'm just going to be talking around for another hour. And private. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for joining the show today. This has been a really fun conversation and, uh, yeah, I can't thank you enough.
0: Oh my gosh! It has been my pleasure to join Jen, and um, yeah, I hope uh, I hope you and your listeners, if you have any uh, challenges or issues with Sparktoro or, or marketing questions or whatever, I am happy to help. Um, I'm Rand at Sparktoro.com.
1: Amazing. Well, thank you everyone for listening and joining us. Please rate and review us on your favorite network and don't forget to share the show. Um, On next week's episode, I'll be joined by Maher Beltefa from Faricia, one of our Vidi winners, and I will see you then.